when Tex and Tess Carpenter build houses in Texas. Now, it's not the name of a nursery rhyme that you missed at kindergarten or indeed the title of a new children's book, but rather the title of a very serious academic journal article produced by the American Psychological Association on the study of nominative determinism and implicit egotism, which in layman's terms means the article when Tex and Tess Carpenter build houses in Texas is about the fact that every single one of us apparently has an unconscious bias to uh, live up to our name. For the study conclusively showed that people who have the surname Farmer or Baker are disproportionately more likely to be found uh, on the farm or in the bakery, and that people named Cal or Tex are disproportionately more likely to move to California or Texas, respectively. Indeed, according to their research, it's also why we get William Wordsworth, the great romantic poet, and Usain Bolt, the lightning-fast Olympian. And it's why today a recent book on climate change entitled Frozen Future was aptly written by Daniel Snowman, and why a contemporary article on urology in dogs was regrettably co-authored by two scientists, Splat and Weedon. And the reason for all this? Well, according to the authors of When Tex and Tess Carpenter Build Houses in Texas, uh, people are subconsciously focused on themselves, and they try to live up to their names. Indeed, when I discussed this with my wife, uh, we agreed that such research could perhaps explain any potential uh, implicit egotism in our own marriage. For my humble wife's name, Sarah, means princess, and Jonathan, meanwhile, very meekly, means God's gift. <laughs> but you know, not everyone is sold on this idea. Indeed, when asked about it, the former uh, Lord Chief Justice uh, Iger Judge of England uh, responded gruffly, I'm absolutely convinced that in my case, my name and occupation is entirely coincidental. And so, friends, what about you? Do you subconsciously or perhaps consciously seek to be you? Do you try to, to live up to your, your first name, your Christian name? Do you live in light of your calling? Well, in Daniel chapter 6, that Abby has just kindly read for us, uh, something rather interesting occurs in, in our passage that I think is very easy for us to miss. For here in this final narrative chapter, Daniel, the, the author and the protagonist of this book, once again starts to be called his name from birth. Now, if you've been with us for uh, this last six weeks uh, in this series, you'll remember that, that Daniel's name was changed in the very opening pages. For Daniel was one of God's people from Judah, and at the start of this book, just a little boy. But when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem in the year 605 BC, Daniel was captured. And in order to unearth him from his biblical roots, and in order to transplant him to an evil uh, pagan society, the lights were to go out on Daniel's biblical name. For Daniel 1 verse 7 he was to be called Belteshazzar, which means, O wife of the god Baal, keep the king. 
O goddess of Babylon, may the king remain judge over everyone. And so for the last 70 years, Daniel has been answering to that name. But as we discovered last week, something pivotal happened at the end of chapter 5. For in the final verse of chapter 5, in the year 539 BC, the armies of Darius the Mede, uh, most likely also known as Cyrus the Great, conquered the city of Babylon. And one of the seemingly small upshots of that regime change and the superpower of the Medo-Persian Empire overtaking the superpower that was Babylon was that somewhere between chapters 5 and 6, Daniel evidently gets his name back. Indeed, in verse 5, for the first time in 70 years, everyone starts calling him Daniel. Indeed, it is even what Darius passionately cries out in verse 20. Oh, Daniel, oh, Daniel. And so what does the name Daniel mean? Well, in the original Hebrew, Daniel very aptly means God is my judge. God is my judge. In reality, his name meant the very opposite of his Babylonian name. For no earthly king is my judge, but the heavenly king is my judge which is really significant for us, the reader, because for the whole of his life, Daniel had never actually forgotten his calling at all. For from when Daniel was just a boy taken from Jerusalem to when Daniel is now a very old man ruling in Babylon, though, though numerous powers have come and gone, though, though numerous kings and satraps have, have wielded different laws throughout his life, in the core of his own existence, Daniel has always lived for an audience of just one. Daniel has consistently lived with the fact that God is judge. Whether like Iger Judge, the English Lord Justice, he felt as though his name and task were coincidental, or whether like the psychologists tell us, Daniel subconsciously desired to, to live up to his name. From chapters 1 to 6, we meet a man whose message has been God is on the throne, and all must live in light of it. God is king, and all knees must bow to him alone. God is judge, and all must obey him in every season. And nowhere, nowhere is that more apparent than in this famous last narrative scene in this book, for just when it looks as though all the lights are about to go out on Daniel. And the writing is on the wall for him. Daniel's name returns in big, flashing, neon lights. God is judge is the name turned back on after 70 years. God is judge is the name turned back on for us, the reader, and for everyone who lives in the darkness of paganism or refuses to accept that God is judge. So how does Daniel live up to his name here? How does he do that? And what does that mean for us today, who may not be called Daniel, but also are those who are to live in light of our true calling, as those who know that God is judge over all? Or to put it another way, how might we also put Christ's name up in lights by the way in which we live in our own godless culture, so that those who do not trust that God is judge might do so? before it's too late. Well, this morning, uh, if we're Christians here, I have five points. Five points 
that Daniel, God is my judge, means for how we're to live. And the first one of these, point number one, is that God is my judge means that we are to be faithful in every decade and dominion. We are to be faithful in every decade and every dominion. One of the key themes in this book, as hopefully you've picked up, is not only that that God is judge, but that God is judge in every age of human history. For the book of Daniel is set against the backdrop of all these competing ancient superpowers. And as the curtain goes up on on the play of Daniel's life, the Assyrians are losing their power to the Babylonians. But before the curtain even falls on Daniel's life, the Babylonians have lost all their powers to the Persians. And as Daniel predicts in chapter 2, the Persians will soon lose all their powers to the Greeks, and then the Greeks will soon lose all their powers to the Romans. But amid all these kind of rising and falling empires in Daniel, despite all this kind of risk, board game strategizing for, for who will rule the world, despite all the fighting to keep a hold of the, of the judge's gavel, as every king admits, every king admits at the end of every chapter, verse 25, there is one kingdom that shall endure forever. One judge whose dominion shall be until the end. And what does that enduring truth mean? Well, it means for, for Daniel that, that life never really changes. Indeed, what has been really striking to me about these past uh, six chapters is that in the theater production that is Daniel, There's just this kind of constant conveyor belt of kings, great actors on the world stage, from Jehoiakim in chapter 1 to then Nebuchadnezzar and then to Belshazzar and now finally to Darius. But as these kings enter stage right and and then quickly exit stage left, Daniel always just kind of stands in the center of the stage with the palace backdrop still there, still faithfully working, Harden his job, faithfully declaring to each fleeting king as they pass by, God is judge. Accordingly, it should be of no surprise to us to see Daniel here in verse 1 again, just kind of faithfully working away. For there remained in him such an excellent spirit that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom, verse 3. And friends, Daniel's example has much to say to us. For there is a beautiful consistency here showcased throughout every decade and and, and throughout every dominion. We've gotten to know Daniel, haven't we, in his his sneakers, and we've gotten to know Daniel in his orthopedic shoes now. But but Daniel's work demeanor is unchanging. Indeed, if you're anything like me, you don't really even picture Daniel changing from the kind of fresh-faced intern to the experienced, gray-bearded high official. Because across every decade and every dominion, across every empire that he works for, and every employer that hires him, Daniel is just this model of faithfulness. Daniel is as distinguished in his work, verse 3, as he was when he was a student in chapter 1. He doesn't work excellently for Nebuchadnezzar, but then come into the office late for Darius. He doesn't work like a madman in his 30s, but chuck in the towel before retirement. No, because God is his judge. Daniel lives according to his name and works for an audience of one. He starts and he finishes well. When he was 30, he worked with distinction. He worked excellently for his earthly judge because he knew that he had a heavenly judge had put him there. 
And now aged 80, he works with distinction. He works excellently for his earthly judge because he knows that his heavenly judge has put him there too. Friends, can you see? Just like the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly work, just like Jesus who worked faithfully for God's glory, entrusting himself to God even through wicked kings like this, Jesus entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, 1 Peter 2. And friends, that is to be our calling as well. For for the knowledge that God is our ultimate judge makes the Christian an excellent worker too. You and I have been called uh, to be faithful where we are. We have been called to use the God-given gifts for his glory and also for the good of society. Across every decade and across every dominion, whether we are 18 or whether we are 48 or whether we're 88, whether we live in Nashville or Niger, whether our earthly boss is a Republican or a Democrat or a pagan-worshipping tyrant like Darius. We are to work for earthly judges with excellence and distinction because there is a judge who rules every decade and every dominion. If we are to live up to our calling just like Daniel, then we are to be faithful in every decade and every dominion. And yet that is far from the only theme in Daniel 6 and what it means to live with God as judge. For secondly, secondly, we see here that, that, that God is my judge means that we are to be faithful in spite of deviousness. We are to be faithful in spite of deviousness. Look with me to verse 4, and let's get into this political drama. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel, this God is my judge character, unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom The prefects and the satraps, the councillors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes any petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore... Darius signed the document and injunction. Scene is a, is a sickening one. Well, the ever faithful creature that is Daniel becomes ensnared by the envious. Verse 4 a pack of politicians plot, the prime ministers plunge, but there are no protests against him. And so, verse 5 a line of lawyers. Look for any loopholes in the law, but again, there are no lapses in his life. And so verse 6, a committee of the charming creep into the king's court, and what do these oily officials do? Well, being the academics that they are, they use nominative determinism and implicit egotism. They deviously draw upon the king's own name. O king, they charm, may you live forever. May people pray in your name alone, verse 7. 
for they know that, that Darius will have a subconscious bias to live up to his name and that Darius' own name meant maintain your possessions. And so they asked Darius to live up to his calling, to maintain that the men of his monarchy, to preserve the, that the people of his own principality, to ensure that, that everyone is exalting him and him alone. In short, their plan is devious in the extreme. And yet, friends, this Christ-like picture is what the faithful who live with God as their judge must often endure in the courtroom of this world. For this is precisely what our loving Lord Jesus faced. Indeed, many of us cannot read Daniel chapter 6 without those, those gospel images just coming to mind. The teachers of the law seeking testimony against Jesus to, to put him to death, but finding none. And the chief priest subtly charming Pilate and saying, this Jesus is a, is a threat to what you possess. And the guilt-ridden politician that is Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd and keep the traditions and so signing the death warrant of Jesus. And friends, if our loyalties lie ultimately with God, then we should also be ex expect to be ambushed by the laws of those who don't live with God as ultimate judge too. For listen, listen, the situation in the West, and in America in particular, where by and large Christianity has been the dominant view of culture and so formed the laws of this land, friends, that is actually the biblical exception. For I do not think that that is what the New Testament causes us to expect. And it is certainly not many of what our, many of our brothers and sisters experience today. No, no, for those who live with God as judge, we're not to seek out the suffering of Daniel and Jesus, but we are to suppose the suffering of Daniel and Jesus. For we are to expect that those who do not live with God as judge will plot our downfall often, and that they will do that at times with deviousness. For what did the loving Lord Jesus Christ say himself? In, in Matthew chapter 10, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of koala bears. No, he didn't say that. No, the animals that Jesus metaphorically said he was sending his dear and precious sheep to but were not cute leaf-eating koala bears that sleep for 24 hours a day almost, but cunning, flesh-eating wolves that hunt deviously under the cover of darkness and in packs so they can take down their prey easily. Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I'm sending you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the law courts and you will be dragged before kings for my sake. And friends, that has happened. And friends, that is happening right now and even in the West. Just the other day, one of my uh, friends from Munich in Germany uh, was speaking on a Christian podcast. And he shared of a situation where one of his elders at his church was, was preaching, uh, preaching in his church, and on the topic of what Christians believe about marriage. And the fact that the gift of marriage consists of the uniting of one man 
and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime, just as our own statement of faith says. And this elder, who was a top, top business manager, a few days later was called in by human resources after one of his colleagues found the sermon on the church's website. And when his big boss came in, he confronted this elder and he told him to take the sermon offline. And when the elder politely refused, he was pretty much forced out of the company. And so my Christian friends, as you two hopefully live up to your true name, as you two hopefully live with with God as your judge and not with the culture as your judge, what are you expecting? And what is the answer for how we should act? Well, friends, let me tell you what the answer is not. For the answer of the follower of Jesus, it is not angry debating online or in person. The answer of the Jesus follower, it is not all our free time spent dueling with the state. The answer of the follower of Jesus is not nostalgia-fueled demonstrations because a so-called Christian country is now being apparently stolen away from us. And the answer of the follower of Jesus is not even discussed for unbelievers, some of whom plot the end of Christians working in certain careers. But rather, the answer for the follower of Jesus is having the discernment of Jesus, knowing that that God is still judge and that we are still called to be faithful even amid deviousness. And as a result of all that, the answer of the Jesus follower is also drawing near to one another. Daniel was sadly a a kind of singled out sheep, seemingly all alone here. But the wonderful news for us, friends, is, is that God has given us one another here at Edgefield Church. And as wolves surround us, we are to make the most of being in that flock. Friends, as worldly pressure grows Monday to Friday, there will no doubt be every temptation for us out of fear and frustration for us to to take it out on, 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 on one another on a Sunday. But my flock and my fellowship, we're not to do that. For when the world encircles and devours us midweek, it is then that we are to come together on Sunday and we are to lick one another's wounds. Indeed, let us not think that some here are not already being wounded weekly. Friends, there are plenty of opportunities for you this week to console the young Christian athlete whose sporting prominence is dying because their coach demands all their time on Sunday. And for you to encourage the Christian middle schooler who is struggling to find friends in their class because they fail to press the like button on certain things that their friends write. And for you to comfort the successful employer who doesn't get that promotion that they so badly crave because of their views on transgender. And for you to reassure that the retired older saint whose spouse is is often really unpleasant with them because they still go to a church that bangs on about the evil of racism. Well, friends, the Jesus who promised his church rest 
and true value and friendship and, and purpose and, and love and salvation and hope and unspeakable joy is also the Jesus who promises church pain and a pain that comes when the world is often devious when we live with God as our judge. We are to be faithful in spite of deviousness and so we must draw near to one another. And yet as a result of that, we must also faithfully keep drawing near to God, which brings us to point three. For thirdly, the knowledge that God is my judge means that we are to be faithful in daily devotions. Point three, we are to be faithful in daily devotions. In verse 10, Daniel realizes that the document has now been signed and that it is now illegal for him to pray. And so for just 30 days, Wi-Fi access to God is now down. Daniel is kind of in airplane mode. And his quiet times are banned. Prayers of praise are forbidden. Prayers of thanks at the meal table are unlawful. Prayers of confession are are now a criminal offense. And so what does Daniel do? Verse 10, look with me. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel, as ever, is this model of faithfulness throughout his life. His life is this this kind of beautiful picture of godly clockwork. It's a new king and a new kingdom. Daniel keeps working hard in the palace. It's a new law in the land, but Daniel keeps praying hard at home. He goes to the upper chamber where he can be seen. And he opens the window where he can be heard. And please note that he does not do that to just irritate his colleagues. No, because God is his judge, Daniel just does what what he's always done. His prayer life does not start amid suffering. His prayer life is shown up amid suffering. Daniel could have secretly just prayed in his head. But God is judge everywhere, and so he keeps praying publicly. He could have just shut the windows or or closed the blinds, but God is judge overall, so he keeps the windows open. He could have just reasoned in his own mind, well, it's only 30 days of, of devotional lockdown. I'll just do double prayer next month. But God is his judge, and God will see his lack of prayer. And God will hear that the silence and his lack of thanks. And so Daniel does not diverge for a minute. For God is his judge. And evidently, friends, not not only his judge, but God is also his creator, his provider, his sustainer. And God has always been his faithful friend and his only hope. Remember back to to chapter 2? Upon hearing that he would be killed in his teenage years, Unless he or another wise man could interpret the dream of the king, what does Daniel do? Daniel immediately goes home and he urges his friends to pray. God has always been Daniel's only hope amid trial. God has always been his his sovereign friend in trouble. The hymn was penned 2,000 years later, but Daniel was a man who practiced that hymn that we sang this morning. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And so Daniel does. He does so every day. He opens the window to the divine courtroom. 
And he keeps thanking the Lord for everything and he, and he keeps sharing all his troubles with him because for Daniel, God cannot just be packed up and sent away for a month any more than a husband or wife can be sent away from their spouse on honeymoon. Indeed, faithfulness in prayer, regular daily time with the Lord, is, it is clearly more dear to Daniel than anything. For just like the Lord Jesus the very Son of God who was often found in a quiet place praying to his heavenly Father, Daniel cherishes time with God more than his life. Daniel would gladly accept the, that the jaws of a beastly lion for a whole night if it meant the ears of his beloved Lord for but a moment. And so Daniel is faithful in his daily devotions no matter the cost. And the obvious question that, that comes to, to you and I, if we are following Daniel's Christ-like example, is, is are we? Are we avoiding prayer? Because no one can judge us for not doing that in private. Or are we avidly praying? Because God is the judge everywhere, even in those quiet places. Moreover, friends, do you see prayer in the same way as the faithful? as the oxygen of relationship with God that it is. Do you understand that, that no true child of God can be mute? Friends, it's very easy for a preacher to beat up his congregation for not praying. Friends, I don't want to do that. For some days, I'm not sure if, if I'd have done the same as Daniel. At times, I make up enough reasons not to pray on my own without having the possibility of a hungry lion waiting for me if I do. And yet, friends, we are called. We're called to be faithful in prayer. We don't have to be legalistic about praying three times a day on our own. We don't have to come to Sunday evening prayer and praise when it starts up in the fall. We don't have to regularly pray through the church membership directory. But friends, I do hope you see yourself somewhere in Daniel and ultimately the Lord Jesus whom you are called to follow. For we are to be faithful in our daily devotions. Our daily chores may roar for our attention, and our email inboxes may snarl for, for primacy first thing in the morning, and our empty stomachs may, may growl for our breakfast, and our, and our children may, may howl for our focus every single morning. But the best thing, the most faithful thing we can do each day is to go to God first. You know, one of my best friends at university, about a decade or so ago now, uh, sadly lost his mother very suddenly. Uh, she wasn't very old at all, and she only got to hold his first child just a few times before she died and went to be with the Lord. And when I asked him what he most remembered about growing up as a little boy and what made the biggest impact on his life, he replied, I remember that every morning, just before me and my brother went off to school, my mother would say goodbye to us, and she would shut her bedroom door, and she would pray. And we knew that her time with God was most precious to her, and that we were never to disturb her then, for the person who meant the most to her, even more than me, even more than my brother, 
was God. Friends, there's a powerful witness in public prayer that that goes beyond just a personal reminder and encouragement that God rules. Prayer also shows other people that God is judge. And so in light of the fact that God is judge, we have to be faithful in every decade and dominion and faithful in spite of deviousness and faithful in our, on our daily devotions. And fourthly, if necessary, we're to be faithful in death. We're to be faithful in death. In verse 14, there's much distress in the palace, isn't there, as you look down there. For just as Pilate sought vainly to deliver Jesus, the earthly king Darius seeks to deliver Daniel. But the truth is, is that he's all too late for earthly powers. For verse 15, that the lawyers lead the charge, they, they show the king his own signature. The sentence is sealed with the, with the king's own signet ring. And so Daniel must go down into the den, into his death, and there is to be no deliverance. Indeed, verse 17, look with me, a stone, a stone is brought and laid on the mouth of the den that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Friends, sometimes the faithful are not only called to faithfulness in work and in hardship and prayer, but also faithfulness in death because they live with God as judge. And we hear of that here in the early centuries BC, and we hear of that in the early centuries AD, and we also hear of that today if we would read below the headlines. For just in the last 10 weeks, whilst the gaze of the world was rightly focused and is rightly focused on the Ukraine, in Afghanistan, the Taliban was going door to door searching for Christians to murder. And in Uganda, a previous mosque leader, aged 35 with four children, was executed for converting to Christianity. And in Pakistan, a minister was blown up in his car. And in Nigeria, three Christians were killed for praying. And in French Guyana, a pastor was shot dead after his church was burned down. For that is what faithfulness means in some places today because that is what a faithful Daniel faced. But ultimately, it is what happened to our faithful Jesus. For Jesus' knowledge that God was judge caused him to live in light of his name and even unto death. For Jesus, as the angel declared to Mary in, in, in Matthew 1, was called Jesus because he would save people from their sins through a faithfulness in death. But friends, can you see, as you read the, the historical record of Jesus, as you, as you, as you come to recognize that Jesus knew that his holy father was judge over all. And that Jesus knew that his holy father would judge the likes of you and me. And that Jesus knew that the likes of you and me, though, though sometimes faithful, are more often than not faithless. In every decade, in every dominion of life, and faithless when the world seeks to devour us, and faithless even sometimes when it just comes to shutting the bedroom door and praying. And because of that, Jesus knew that he must be faithful even unto death 
for the sake of faithless people like you and me. And so can you see, can you see here, friends, how all the shadows in the great story of Daniel's faithfulness in the den find their substance in the greatest story of Jesus' faithfulness on the cross. For Psalm 30, the Messianic Psalm, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness with Christ? Absolutely it will. For the profit of Christ's death is divine faithfulness displayed to a faithless world and donated to a faithless you and me if only we would repent and believe. Friends, to be super clear, just in case you missed that reference, if you trust in Jesus' death in your place, if you trust in him going down to the pit for you, if you trust in his faithfulness before the Lord, you will not face the lion of God's justice. His righteous claws shall not tear into your weak flesh. And his sacred teeth shall not rip into an often sinful body. For his holy jaws shall be closed to the one who trusts in their Savior, Jesus. And how do we know all this? How do we know? How do we leave this morning assured in the confidence that when we die, that the wrath of God will not spring out of the darkness? Well, we know that. Because those who are faithful to the end are those whom God delivers. Those who are faithful to the end are those whom God delivers. Final point this morning. Because God is judge, he will be faithful in delivering us. He will be faithful in delivering us. Let's return to our story for the last time in this series. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel. And shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I've done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad, and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The allusions to the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which perhaps seemed a little bit blurry at the start, are now seen in in high-definition 4K resolution. At the break of day, the king goes down to pay his respects, just as the women disciples of Jesus did that that, that resurrection morning. And the king cries in anguish as as the men move the stone, as Mary did, upon seeing the stone rolled away. And when the king stoops down and looks into the tomb in disbelief, and when he dares to ponder whether God 
has possibly been faithful to deliver the faithful man just like the disciples. The one who is faithful, faithful to the end, says, why are you crying? I have not been harmed. Put your hand in mine and now let me be lifted up out of the pit for I am alive, for I trust it in the faithfulness of my God. Friends, do you see what has been done? And do you see what we are called to do? Our name may be Daniel, or Jonathan, or Seth, or Tim, or William, or Drew, or Jim. Our name may be Daniela, or Victoria, or Sandy, or Lynn, or Stephanie, or Sue, or Catherine. But the one name, the one name which we must be tethered to, the one name which we must find our identity in, the one name that we must faithfully follow to the end is the one who knew that God was judged in a unique way, the one who felt the roar of God's judgment for all evil, for all the evil that we have witnessed this week in our nation's churches and schools, for all the evil that we've had to work through in our very own hearts, throughout our lives. And yet we may, we must be united to the name which is above every name. The one who knew that a faithful God delivers the faithful and that his delivery would see him raised from the pit to overthrow sin and death for all who trust in him, for all who own his name. Friends, what's the name that you are trusting in to deliver you from the pit of death and judgment? Friends, what good is it to be called like a faithful Darius, like a man called maintain your possessions when the time of Daniel, God is my judge, isn't it? Now in the face of verse 24, and the frightening justice of the king, and those lines that broke every bone, there is no other name that will deliver. There is no other name that we should put our trust in. Only Jesus was faithful enough for a God of justice. Only Jesus has been faithfully raised from that pit. And only those who trust in Jesus and in his name alone will be delivered by a faithful and just God too. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we, we come before you and you recognize that you are judge over all. We find great comfort in your justice and yet because of it we also see our failure. Well, Father, we know that we're often not faithful Daniels who live with you as judge. Father, we go through various seasons of faithlessness. We're often taxed by the world and become unfaithful. Sometimes some of us even struggle to be faithful at all in prayer. And so, Father, would you help us? Would you help us to identify with the faithful one, the Lord Jesus, who died for us, with the faithful one who was raised for us. And Father, we praise you 
for your faithful delivering of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that by faith that we would identify with your faithful risen Son, we'd find our confidence in his faithful work, in his dying, and in your faithful work of rising, raising him. And Father, having identified ourselves in him, having decided to bear his name, Father, we ask and pray that we would live as your faithful people, those who are faithful in every season because you are the God who judges. And we pray all this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.